Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 157 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new Netflix original series Sense 8 about a group of eight strangers from around the world who find themselves becoming part of a telepathic group mind. And this will involve spoilers for season one of Sense 8, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So, first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and also the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Wastelands 2, Operation Arcana, and The End Has Come. So, John, welcome back. Good to be here. And also joining us today is Tobias Bakel, making his eighth appearance on the show. He's the author of the Xenowealth series of space adventure novels, the eco-thrillers Arctic Rising and Hurricane Fever, and the New York Times bestselling Halo novel The Cold Protocol. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. And also joining us for the first time is Sam J. Miller. He's a writer and a community organizer in New York City, and his short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Nightmare, and Strange Horizons, and has been nominated for the Nebula and Theodore Sturgeon Awards, and has won the Shirley Jackson Award. So, Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, and so this show, Sense8, was created by the Wachowskis, who did the Matrix movies, and by J. Michael Straczynski, who made Babylon 5. And a few weeks ago, John emailed me and said I had to watch it, that it was terrific. And that surprised me a little bit that he would say that, given his track record with the Wachowskis. So just to give you an example of that, back in episode 138, John, <laughs> John says, quote, I've never liked any of their movies. Please take away their directing cards. Stop, <laughs> stop giving them more ammunition to let these people make movies they shouldn't be allowed to. They're, <laughs> they're taking millions of dollars that could be applied to actually good science fiction movies, and they're making these overblown spectacles that I find repellent. So I think that gives you a pretty good idea of, where, of what John's <laughs> expectations were regarding the Wachowskis going into this show. But John, how about J. Michael Straczynski? Did you have any particular expectations regarding his involvement? Yeah, I was actually basically kind of neutral about him. Like I, you know, I knew he was very well regarded for Babylon Five. I never got into it myself, uh, and I and I haven't read any of his comics work or anything. So basically, it's like you know, you know, I didn't have any high expectations certainly because I was never a fan, but I didn't really have any bad expectations. I, I just figured he was the sort of person, well, it's like, I understand a lot of people like him. I haven't personally connected with anything he's done yet, but I didn't, you know, just assume that he would turn in terrible things. <laughs> uh, and how about Toby? Uh, what sort of expectations did you have going into this, given the involvement of the Wachowskis and J. Michael Straczynski? Um, I liked Babylon 5 when I was in high school, and I have not revisited it since then. So I kind of also, like John, was neutral on, on you know, J. Michael's involvement because uh, I've not gone back and double-checked my own sort of high school uh, love of the series. I'm usually suspect of things I mm -hmm. still remember liking in high school mm -hmm. at this age. Um, but, you know, I really like The Matrix, and I think the Wachowskis do some interesting visual things, but I think that sometimes uh, I am left cold by their ability to world build and to do dialogue and a number of other items. And so I kind of went into this not quite neutral, but with, you know, hopes that maybe there'd be something interesting visually, a sort of interesting visual spectacular and ended up uh, watching a very heavy character-based uh, piece of science fiction. So 
I was I was quite surprised and and pleased. Hmm. And how about Sam? Uh, how about what, what did you think of the Wachowskis and J. Michael Straczynski going into this? Um, I don't know anything about uh, J. Michael Straczynski, uh, but I feel like with the Wachowskis, I've I've always felt, including The Matrix, that they make really well-made movies that I just don't connect with emotionally for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Um, and with the exception of Cloud Atlas, which I actually loved and thought was a really brilliant movie, um, although there were things about it I didn't love, um, like the fact that Asian characters were being played by white people. Um, but... Um, the reason that I think one of the things that I loved about Cloud Atlas was it wasn't just them. They co-directed that with Tom Tickver, um, and the result is something I felt really different from the rest of their work. And, and he was also associated with Sense8, so I mm-hmm. thought um, that, that that would be a, a, good, a good sign for the, their like, talent to be tempered with something more emotionally real, um, which I actually think is what happened. That's interesting. You know, I heard really mixed things about both Speed Racer and Cloud Atlas, so I never saw them. But having watched this, I maybe would be curious to go hmm. back and watch Cloud Atlas. Did anyone else see it? Anyone else have an opinion on it? I have not seen Cloud Atlas or Speed Racer. I saw Cloud Atlas, and, you know, so obviously you know what my opinion on their <laughs> gender work has been prior to that. I haven't seen Speed Racer. I have to say, actually, seeing Sensei and, and liking it so much, I actually kind of want to see Speed Racer, just because, like, I have actually heard people say that it's really good. Like, I think Robert Kirkman actually says it's really good. And he was, like, ranting about how great it was. Um, and so it's like, so there certainly are people who stick up for it and say that it's actually a good movie. I, I never had any interest in it because, you know, I don't care about the cartoon. It didn't, like, look like it was particularly interesting. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's the one movie of theirs unrelated to The Matrix that I haven't seen. Like, I, I, didn't, I never saw the third Matrix movie because, you know, I hated the <laughs> second one so much. But, um, you know, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually... I almost kind of want to see Jupiter Ascending now. I mean, you know, I don't know if I'd go that far. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, really, I really like Sense8 so much. Like, um, So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I kind of feel weird about it. But, you know. Well, well, John, talk a little bit more about that. Because, I mean, this does seem in many ways a characteristic Wachowski's project, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you see it? You, like, what makes this so much different in your mind from The Matrix or Cloud Atlas or whatever? Well, what I think is interesting is, so Sam was talking about how um, uh, their movies are well made, but he doesn't, they don't resonate with them emotionally. And I mean, I think that's been uh, true for me as well. But then Sensate really does the emotional stuff really, really well. Like, I mean, seriously, like I, I got very caught up in a lot of the different emotional scenes in the, in the show and like, you know, um, watching it with my wife and stuff. And it's like, we're both just sort of on the verge of tears in multiple uh, times. And, and um, so I actually watched all 12 episodes. Um, and then I told you how great it was. And I said, we should do a panel. And then like leading up to the panel, we actually rewatched the whole show again already. So, um, I mean, so that sort of says how much I liked it. And, and then even on rewatch, you know, I, I was finding myself getting just really, really emotionally um, in, invested in, in, in all of the different events. Um, and I mean, I think, um, the reason that that works so well on the show is that the characters are just so well drawn. Like these characters like feel like real people. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's not a case that I would probably, I I probably wouldn't say that for most of the Wachowski's work prior to that. Um, and I don't know who's responsible for it. I don't know if it's J. Michael Straczynski or, or or whatever, but I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. It just, it it all came together in a way that really worked for me. I mean, I have some concerns about the show's like sort of long-term viability, but I mean, what we've seen so far, like, I mean, I'm just all in. I love it. Hmm. I mean, Sam, what do you think about that, about the characters? Do you agree with John that the characters are well-drawn? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like that that's really what hooked me. I feel like this show gives a astonishing uh, degree of time and support and re resources to nurturing character development and relationships. I've heard people critique it on those grounds and say it doesn't, it's not action packed enough. It moves very slowly. <laughs> this show spends whole episodes devoted to things that other shows would at most give a scene for. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's so important and so, so central to its real strength, which is to show the importance of community and chosen family and, um, you know, the ways in which our lives are like interwoven. Um, so it isn't just the characters that, that work for me so well, it's also the relationships between them. Um, so that was something that worked really well for me. Right. Were there any particular characters that you, did you like all the characters about equally, or did you have ones that were your favorites or ones you weren't as <laughs> much into? I really liked Van Damme the most for most <laughs> of the show. Um, mm -hmm. And I liked Sun a lot. And, you know, it was funny. I actually disliked uh, Leto, uh, the gay uh, closeted actor, um, a lot and had a lot of problems with that storyline. But it ended up being one of the real strengths of the show and something mm -hmm. that I really loved. And I think they did really interesting things with the way characters' story and the way they were told changed over time. Because that starts off being like a, a sort of like telenovela um, that that ends up being, I thought, pretty got at some pretty real emotion. Mm -hmm. So, so sorry. So, so, so you you thought just it was a little bit um, like campy or something initially. It was played a little bit too much for laughs. It was a little mm. too. Um, you know, I, I find there's often like Modern Family is sort of like the the example of this that gets me the most of like the gay couple that's like cute comic relief. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I felt like this was kind of that. Um, and so that ended up it ended up sort of really subverting that uh, trope in a really radical way that I mm -hmm. really loved. There's this thing about the show that fascinates me, because when I started watching it, I was really worried about uh, both uh, Van Damme's son and uh, Lita's storylines because they actually started from a place of almost stereotypical uh, characters that you see quite a bit, right? Uh, the smoldering Latin lover uh, from a telenovela. Uh, those are like, you know, if you ask people in the U.S. what they know about sort of uh, South America, telenovelas and, and that are, are basically really quickly accessible stereotypes. Sun um, is also a martial arts practicing uh, South Korean lady with a sort of inscrutable father who does the honorable thing. Um, and Van Damme is, is almost a sort of magical Negro stereotype where he's wise, he's happy, he lives in an Africa where there's AIDS and warlords. And as the show keeps going, they start subverting a lot of these things. So I spent the first half of the series kind of really worried about where mm. they would go. But by the, the dint of, of really digging into the character's depths, um, they managed to sort of explore some of the things that I was worried about. For example, uh, you know, at one point, one of the characters does say, are you in Africa? And he says, no, 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 no. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he actually corrects them. He's like, Africa is a continent. I'm, I'm living in a country, you know, and he can name it. And I think it's, it, was it Kenya? Yeah, um, Kenya? I'm blanking. Yeah. yeah I've Kenya. spent all day. Yeah, uh, so um, he actually corrects them, which is this huge thing that we're always talking about online about that, you know, uh, people who just go like, Africa is this one mm -hmm. thing. Um, I still, you know, I'm still worried in that I want to see more specificity in that his, you know, uh, his environment is still sort of a little bit generic, quote unquote, uh, stereotypical Africa in some ways. Mm -hmm. But, uh, 
because they keep digging and digging and digging, uh, you know, Sun uh, eventually goes through this really fascinating kind of uh, sequence that you kind of go like, you know, art is flawed and I'm willing to give them this just to see where they're going to take it. You know, if this all falls apart in season two, I'm going to be distraught and people are mm-hmm. going to be, you know, throwing eggs at me in the street mm-hmm. or something like that. But I, I kind of, you know, started out going like, oh my gosh, you know, why is this guy smiling all the time? Why does he always have something wise to tell everyone? And uh, they really just kind of uh, power through all the way to the other side with that character and all the characters that they're kind of using these stereotypical moments of to sort of explore this depth, the the iceberg underneath them that kind of goes, you know, by the time you're done, you kind of go like, okay, uh, I see where they're going with this and I'm willing I'm willing to grant them this just just to see them, you know, keep making the characters mm. whole and human and complete. You know what I find really interesting about um, how well the characters are drawn is that I, I feel like I could watch a show, a whole show about almost all of them. Like, um, like I don't know that Will has a sufficiently interesting enough storyline to sustain a show by himself. <laughs> I don't know if Wolfgang does, but I think most of the other ones do. Like, I would watch a show about Leto, about Capius, about Kala, about Sun, and and about Nobi. Yeah, and oh, and yeah. let's see, Riley, Riley, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's harder to say with her, but. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, just like just the fact that there's so many rich storylines there that I would love to see more of uh, really gives me a lot of hope that the show's gonna uh, be able to take some time to explore some of these things. Um, you know, oh, and I was gonna say with uh, when Sam was talking about um, Leto's storyline being sort of played for laughs, like uh, I, I did uh, uh, notice that myself that like his storyline was sort of more the lighthearted one, and um, I have to say, like one of my favorite lines from the show is actually. Uh, in one of the scenes where it's like, okay, well, it's obviously being played for laughs, but like, uh, he's sort of having his meltdown in traffic. Um, and, and it's like related to the sensate thing. Cause he's, you know, he's sort of channeling someone else's emotions, but, um, he's having his little meltdown in traffic and, and somebody cuts him off and he says, I see you villain. And I'm like, that's such a, <laughs> that's such a hilarious line. Like, I just love that. Like it was a hilarious thing to say. And I did think, uh, the Hernando character, his, his mm-hmm. boyfriend, I thought he, he felt to me like the most real, Mm-hmm. character yeah. he, he felt like the most like a real person of any of the characters in the show um i was gonna say though the my least favorite out of the sensates was actually kala i I thought she was sort of boring um i thought in in workshop uh writing workshop terms she i thought she was what we would call a passive character where uh-huh. she didn't never really did anything she was just kind of always standing around mm-hmm. witnessing things that were going on around her i don't know if anyone felt that way mm-hmm. as well yeah, that's probably true. She is uh, one of the more passive characters. She's so like interest. Like I found her so interesting though, and like she was, uh, and like the actress was just like really adorable, and like I like enjoyed watching her um, perform like her scenes. Um, and uh, I mean, I th- the thing is, I think like they are positioning her to have to make some big important decisions, and it's just that we haven't seen that much of it. Um, we haven't seen her have to do that at this point yet too much. Um, like, you know, obviously she has a big decision to make whether or not to, to marry Rajan and, and, and all that kind of thing. So, um, I think maybe some of that's going to be saved for just for season two, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a fair enough, uh, complaint. Uh, and then the other character, the character I thought was the most interesting actually was Nomi, who I don't think we've mentioned yet. Um, Mm -hmm. did anyone have any feelings about her as a character? I I did, and part of it was that I personally find very triggering um, scenes of like 
mm. medicalized slash restrained queer people and women uh, and and found those scenes really difficult. The early scenes of her being like uh, institutionalized and forcibly restrained and medicated against her will. Uh, and I couldn't tell how much of that was just that that's personally triggering for me and how much of it is, is it, is it being exploitative and um, manipulative? I'm not sure if anyone else had any thoughts on that. Um, but but her her character ended up being amazing, and the the casting of a trans woman playing such a great role was was really uh, was exciting, and she was marvelous. I mean, I, I felt that since um, Lana Wachowski is a, a trans woman herself, I, I I really felt that she had channeled a lot of herself into that character, and and I felt that um, I I could, I could feel the investment of the creator in that character. Mm-hmm. I, I thought. Uh, yeah, I read just, an interview where she said that that was actually very, it was actually very personal and difficult for mm-hmm. her to write that that character. Mm-hmm. What I really like about the, uh, you you guys mentioned it earlier, I forget who, but someone said the the theme of found family that runs throughout it all, and I think that is extremely warm with those two characters. That sense of found family, creating a family outside of a biological family, among mm-hmm. friends and community, and with each other, and the tremendous devotion between the two characters. It is. It's one of the more loving relationships I've ever seen, like on screen. You know, in in on screen fiction, we see so many stories about people falling in love, but never like these rock steady partnerships of people who are already in love and who work together as a team against the rest of the world so strongly. And seeing that, I think, depicted um, in in any way was just amazing. And and to have it with those two characters, uh, I really responded to their storyline. They were two of my favorite characters in the show. Mm-hmm. I actually kind of, I almost kind of wish that there was a version of the show that didn't have all the explicit sex in it. Um, like, I, I think it works really well on the show, but like, I also feel like my 13 year old stepdaughter would really like the show if it didn't have all this like really explicit sex in it. Um, and it's like, and it's like the stuff in the show, like it's all really well done, and it's like, um, you know, it's very, very character oriented. It is not like, you know, not like super titillating, but, but it's like it's so intense. Like I, I would actually be uncomfortable watching it with anybody but my wife. Like I mean, if I, if, like I wouldn't want to have like friends over to watch this <laughs> show probably because it's like, it's it's like it's pretty hot stuff, you know. It's like I, I don't I don't want to watch that with my friends, like you know. Um, and so certainly my uh, you know my stepdaughter wouldn't watch it with us, and I don't even think that she'd want to watch it on her own because it's so um, you know so explicit. But um, yeah, so I know I don't know. I, I kind of wonder if it's going to get syndicated onto cable at some point, where you know they'll sort of uh, sanitize some of it a little bit to make it, um, you know, PG thirteen or something. Um, on the other hand, I, I actually really respect them for for going for that and not sort of pre sanitizing it, um, since you know Netflix doesn't have those any kind of you know ratings boundaries to worry about. So. Um, you know, I talked about this in the Mad Max panel where I was saying, you know, it's like I really like that, you know, you know, you, they just went forward and made a rated R movie without trying to pander to the PG-13 audience. So, um, you know, same deal here. Well, and it's interesting, John, because, I mean, there are a lot of shows that deal with explicit sex, dealing with mm-hmm. the fantasy of sex, mm-hmm. but not so much the reality of sex and gender. And I thought this show was really striking in the way that it dealt with the reality of bodies yeah. and gender. And, mm-hmm. you know, like the scene where Amanita fakes a... Um, bloody tampon mm-hmm. like you don't see that in other shows you know mm-hmm. or like what other show would you have a 10 minute long mm-hmm. montage of women giving birth right yeah 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 totally which honestly i thought was a little long but uh <laughs> oh, i appreciate it i appreciate the idea but well, try going into labor what was that <laughs> sam you said something uh, i thought it was perfect it was so emotional i was sobbing <laughs> like a baby 
you know, the finale of Game of Thrones had a really brutal 10-minute scene of a woman being put through a really horrific ordeal that just went on and on and was super painful. Mm. And comparing that to this really long, really rapturous, beautiful, joyous scene of of parents giving birth and 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 the pain, but also the joy and the like incredible power of you know life being created. Um, and I just really think it's it, it speaks to the sort of radically different vision that this show is bringing. That you know it spent ten minutes on a scene of wonder and and happiness and and power um, rather than like horror and suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those scenes could have been ninety seconds, the one in Game of Thrones mm-hmm. and this one, but but they both felt really determined to go to that place to get an emotional reaction out of the viewer. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting that, I mean, speaking of going on for 10 minutes, that we've been talking about this show for quite a long time, this show about a telepathic group mind, and we haven't even really mentioned <laughs> the telepathic part of the show. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but let's talk about that. I mean, I mean, I, I was really, really impressed by the way it handled the telepathy. It really felt, I, mm-hmm. I felt like the show really made me feel like I was experiencing what it would feel like to be telepathic. Yeah, no, I thought it was great. And uh, I I love the way the cluster uh, sort of experiments with the different uh, ways of of connecting telepathically with with the other people in the cluster, like, you know, where, you know, where they first, uh, you know, sort of borrow each other's skills, like when Sun helps Capius, you know, kick some ass uh, when he's being attacked and or or when he's trying to get his his mother's uh, drugs back and, and all that kind of stuff, like all that stuff, like is just really great and really well done. And Actually, it's funny, like, I don't know if you guys had this thought, but, like, it occurred to me that there's a really good explanation of, like, how the telepathy works in that show, but it's not in the show, it's in Fight Club. (laughs) Um, You know, like, essentially, like, the way that all the telepathy works is kind of, like, almost exactly the way uh, Tyler Durden, the Tyler Durden hallucination works in Fight Club, where it's, like, you know, sometimes, you know both personalities are sort of on the outside, like watching the, the one person and they're sort of talking to each other. And then sometimes like, you know, um, the, you know, the person that's, uh, the, the, the local person is sort of, uh, just being sort of possessed essentially by, by one of the others and, and allowing them to take over their body and, and that kind of thing. And so it's like, uh, I kept thinking about fight club and the way it's, it's described there. And, and so I thought that was cool. I also love the those little moments of joy and discovery that they have. I particularly enjoyed like when the one per uh, I forget who who, but they they called each other using the phone, mm. yeah, uh, to verify that that it was real. It was just one of those quick, you know. So many movies, so many, so much TV does not like even accept the fact that cell phones exist, <laughs> you know. Uh, and they they ride around to avoid it, and it's like, yeah, of course, the first thing you would do is figure out mm-hmm. each other's number and have someone else call it, you know, to right. make sure that this wasn't a hallucination, you know. It's it, it, it just it's it's really in- enjoyable to see them thinking through the world building. I, I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things, you know, we don't know, like, okay, yeah, it's kind of a crazy thing. Yeah, these people are all telepathic and and connected to each other across the world. That's some crazy sauce right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, how does that work? You know, as a science fiction, uh, you know, you kind of hope that they don't explain it too much. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating is I love it when you take that nugget, you say, what if? And then you just sort of expand out all these different ways. I mean, that's what really good science fiction and fantasy is. And that's exactly what they do. They kind of look at all the different ways that this can benefit, harm, and confuse them. And 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 it's going to be the range of human emotions. There's going to be, you know, the 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 joy of just calling each other up on the phone to make sure that this is like really happening, even though you can do it telepathically. Hmm. No, I totally agree with you, Toby, that, that the show was really, really good at 
showing, not telling in a, in a sense, right? That we just saw how the telepathy worked and they didn't try to explain it too much. Mm-hmm. I thought as the show went along, in some of the later episodes, they tried to explain it a little more than I would have liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, I think they would have been better off uh, without some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, like in particular, I mean, I actually, th- I, th- I thought for... I thought this was total bullshit. I mean, for total <laughs> for total bullshit, it wasn't bad bullshit. But the thing about like, oh, well, maybe all animals are telepathic and humans mm-hmm. kill each other so without compunction because we lost our we you know we had a little mutation and we lost our telepathic gene or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like stuff like I, I kind of hate it when they get into stuff like that because I, yeah, yeah. I just don't believe it. Um, yeah. But and and I saw a review that pointed out that it was kind of funny that they had that this line about oh the sensates have the hmm. are connected so they they don't have the same like wants and destruction that normal people do yeah and then in the next scene uh Kefius kills like 50 people <laughs> yeah or, <laughs> with, or, with or no apparent emotional distress at, uh, <laughs> yeah. Bar, you know? yeah i i felt like they gave answers to things that i didn't want answers to and mm-hmm. didn't give me answers to things that i did want answers to like um were uh, Jonas and Angelica part of the same cluster? Were they the only ones left from that cluster? Can any member of a cluster birth another cluster? Mm-hmm. Um, so some of this is stuff that I imagine we'll get to uh, later. Um, I also really loved the the sort of uh, villain um, the thing the fact that the Mr. Whispers. Yeah, the fact that once he makes eye contact with you, he can get in your head forever. I thought that was a creepy, terrifying, and really fresh uh, thing that I've never seen before. I also love the fact that after the first scene, we didn't see him till the seventh episode. Like, yeah. this wasn't about, like, the global menace. It was about the the people's relationships. Right, and I actually thought that, I mean, I I had really mixed feelings about the, the sort of global conspiracy aspect, because I really loved the show... I was more interested in the, the how does telepathy affect these people's lives than I was in the, like, once it gets into kind of like more X-Men territory, mm-hmm. like, I kind of feel like, 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 I love X-Men, but we've already had X-Men. <laughs> and right. it started feeling like, I, I was like, oh, I just don't want this to turn into like a superhero show where they're fighting the evil conspiracy yeah. shadowy government or agency. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, my, my by far my my least favorite part of the show is is the stuff that's that that sort of conspiracy angle. And I mean, I, I sort of like it's partially like from past experience. Like I'm sort of like afraid, like you know, like you know, shows like Lost, which had all this sort of shit oh going on, and yeah. then like the X Files <laughs> and stuff. Like you know, I, I'm I'm just I'm just really gun shy about like embracing anything that like does things like that. And so like that was my least favorite parts of it. Um, but. Uh, I think all of the other elements that the show does well more than made up for that, and I'm willing to give them a little rope and you know see see where it goes. Um, but uh, yeah, I yeah. do hope that they've uh, put a lot of thought into what's happening mm-hmm. in the next seasons. That that they didn't just create just this one season, and yeah. you know they haven't thought it out. You know, I, I'm I'm deadly afraid, like I said, of of being really excited about this for season one, mm-hmm. and then showing up and having season two being, you know, an utter train wreck which is how i felt about the matrix right like right. there's all this fantastic stuff that you've kind of come up with here are all these these things and we're going to explore them out and then it just kind of goes down like a lead balloon in terms of mm-hmm. the world building and, and and positing so you know i'm hoping that the j michael straczynski who did like you know five seasons of or not five but all these different seasons of babylon five that kind of kept unfolding mm-hmm. will be strong in this I think it might have been five. I, I never actually watched that show, but I listened to some interviews with him, and I think it's, mm-hmm. he said it was five. I could be wrong about that, but I th- and 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 people credit him with really kind of 
inventing that in modern television the idea right. of a, a five season mm-hmm. arc or you know like a not not just having an episodic story but mm-hmm. actually telling you know conceiving the whole show as, as one big story i remember being amazed back in high school at that entire it, it felt so new you know like for all the other faults of of babylon 5 even back then i wasn't impressed by the cgi for the mm-hmm. you know for the the space battles but even then i just the sense of like a epicness was so novel to me Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we had Daniel Abraham on the show one time, and he ha- he said this thing that I thought was just great, where he said that he was contrasting X-Files with Babylon 5, and he said X-Files had everything going for it in terms of good acting, good cinematography, good writing, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, but they didn't know where it was going, and Babylon 5 had nothing going for it in mm-hmm. terms of production values and stuff like that, but they knew where it was going, and in mm-hmm. the end, you know, Babylon 5 ended up as a success, and X-Files just kind of crashed and burned. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that means that uh, with J. Michael Straczynski working on this show, that he does know where it's going and uh, that there is a plan because they definitely have the production values on this one. And, oh my like, gosh, I mean, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Like, I've, I don't know if I've ever seen a television show that is at this level. Like, this feel, every episode feels like a movie. And, like, some of the action sequences, like, my God. Um, even the sequences where it's not, like, really crazy over the top action, but even just, like, um, the scene where Leto goes to rescue Daniela from from that guy that you know uh, I can't remember his name, but uh, you know the the bad okay. dude that was uh, trying to trap her into marriage or whatever, um, and and he just goes to like fight the guy and, and rescue her. It's like that was so cool. Like I li- I like love watching like you know sort of starts off sort of telenovela style like and a- after we've already seen him like actually shooting all these different scenes and stuff. Um, I, I thought that really worked well, but um, and then there's like. The crazy or over the top ones with like all the all the stuff where Caffius is is fighting the different gangsters um, and uh, and there's the there's the scene where you know he he comes in and helps Nomi escape in that car and they have that crazy car chase um, and and you know Will has that car chase with uh, with Jonas and in, in, in like episode two and so there's like yeah all these huge like action spectacles that all work really well and like look great and you know better than most movies really. Uh, yeah, I just want to say quickly that I did see J. Michael Straczynski say that he's plotted this out as a five-season arc, and that oh, they, okay. they know where it's going. Oh, oh that's good. amazing. That gives me a great deal of uh, you know excitement for tuning into season two. Yeah. Uh, but I, t- I want to say about the spectacle, though, I mean, I, I just could not believe my eyes watching the <laughs> show, and I was like, how the hell did they film this? I mean, because <laughs> it, it all looks like it was filmed on location. Yeah, uh, it which is, is it really was. unusual for a TV show. Yeah, and, and so then I, I saw that it actually they filmed every uh, J. Michael Straczynski. I think he said they sh- they shot like every single shot was on shot on location in right. yeah. nine different cities. I mean, and you, you can just, tell. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just visually un- unbelievable. It's that the fact that it was so location based makes it gives another level of complexity, considering that we constantly see characters in each other's scenes, right? So mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, suddenly uh, Son will be with Caffius. So, oh. you know, thinking about the extra complexity of filming those scenes oh when goodness. the actors had to move around so much, I, can, I you know, I'm not a, a person who can get his head around that. Um, yeah. So it's, it's extra impressive, the, the complexity of the scenes when you add that narrative sort of world building wrinkle to it. Yeah, well, you just, you just kind of blew my mind. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Well, and, and J. Michael Straczynski, he said that they had plotted the whole thing out, right, on this big chart. And then they're like, oh, crap, we forgot about time zones, right? Because, <laughs> like, you know, Caffius is like, all right, all right we're gonna, we need Caffius to help Sun drive or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. oh, but they're in different time zones. He would be asleep. And so they had to, like, totally reshuffle everything to make sure that everyone would be awake at the same times as the characters. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doubly <laughs> impressed now. I'm, 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 yeah, wow. 
Yeah, I was actually thinking that it was really convenient to have Sun get thrown in prison because she just has all kinds of free time. She can, <laughs> you know, she, she can pop in and help out somebody at a moment's notice because what else does she have to do? I mean, she has to sew some stuff or whatever, but I mean, I guess she's just sitting around doing nothing most of the time. I mean, I don't know what they do in prison, <laughs> especially in, in uh, Korea, but... Um, you know, uh, I mean, maybe she has more stuff to do, but I mean, it's like, you know, she's not going out in the town or anything, so <laughs> should be well, available. Well, it sounds like it's interesting because it sounds like we were all quite taken with this show, but it's gotten pretty mixed reviews. I mean, it's 69 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And really? here, yeah, here's a quote I found. It just says critics seem unsure whether Sense8 is a masterpiece, a disaster or both. Hmm. Do you guys have any thoughts on why maybe we're connecting with this more than, you know, mainstream art is flawed. Art is flawed. It's not I'm I'm not making a case for it being perfect in any way. And the things that don't work about it are gonna really stand out for some people, and the things that do work about it are going to resonate, you know. And I think that that's a sign of the show being something that is faceted and spiky, right? I mean, it is not milk toast, right? Like there's nothing like the fact that people can't figure out whether it's genius or awesome or flawed or a disaster all at the same time speaks to the fact that it's an interesting experiment. I think maybe as, as a writer for me, I, I find a glorious failed experiment that kind of like tried to bat high way more interesting than something that just tries to bat low and succeeds. Mm-hmm. And so for me, in, in many ways, even if this all goes up in total smoke and, and, and flames out horribly, I'm still along for the ride because I'm I'm interested. Like I said, I, I I certainly I have a lot of reservations about the sort of stereotypical racial stuff that's happening in it. You know, I'm really scared about that, right? Then so there's a part of me that has to go like, crap, this is another series where I have to set aside, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that I want really nuanced look at race or a really nuanced look at people living in other countries in order to enjoy it, right? I actually have to sit there and repress a little piece of myself that goes like, why is this uh, you know, character in Kenya, um, smiling all the time and happy, you know, even though things around him are pretty rough. Um, cause that is such a, uh, I mean, that, that's such a glaring thing. Um, you know, why is son always inscrutable? That is just another huge glaring thing. And so, I mean, like that obviously is going to bounce people off. And so there are a lot of people that I wouldn't recommend it to. Cause I'm like, man, you're going to bounce off this hard and rightfully so. Right. Um, I do think that they're that they're doing better than say having white people play Asian characters like they did for Cloud Atlas. I think some of this is being mitigated. One of the things that I've always been impressed by um, the Wachowskis is if you go look at them. One of the reasons I adore the Matrix and the sequels, even though they're flawed, is because they have just tons and tons of characters of color and actors of color just everywhere, and it's something you almost never see on screen. And so for all of the flaws. Um, I'm getting this in Sensate too, because they're going to these different parts of the world and just filming there. And so you're seeing just tons and tons of characters of color and of different countries. Flip side is that because you've got so many non-traditional characters being, being up there in a big way, I think some people are going to bounce off of that and not even realize that that's what they're bouncing off mm-hmm. of. All your traditional power fantasy uh, entry points are are not the main characters here. Um, we have a white male cop in Chicago, and we've got a white male, uh, you know, criminal in Germany. But those two are probably the weakest characters out of the entire show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, uh, in some cases, probably some critics are going to just basically not see a way into it 
because they're not being fed up the dish that they want. And so you're going to have a lot of um, uh, bias and subconscious actually reacting to say like, this is really great, but I something I feel uncomfortable with it for mm-hmm. some reason. So I'm going to find something to pick at. And it, it'll be interesting to see how this continues to go as people continue to process it. I think there's still a lot of processing going on. Yeah, I feel like that, that those are all great points. Um, and I feel like the for me, the thing that made it so amazing and, and that and so special and so powerful is the thing that tons and tons of people are going to hate about it is that it's super, super queer. And I don't mm-hmm. mean just the fact that there's like gay sex in it and, and queer mm-hmm. characters. I felt like this this was like a really like in terms of narrative, in terms of the dialogue, there's a, this is coming from a really queer place. It's this really radical idea of what family means, um, the ways that uh, Nomi uh, rejects her mother, right? That her mother mm-hmm. wants to give her love on her mother's terms and, and is, you know, complicit in her being forcibly institutionalized. And, you know, you feel like if that was in a mainstream drama, uh, there would be this push for her to sort of forgive her mother and accept her mother's love even on terms that are offensive and problematic and deny her true identity. Um, and the fact that this show doesn't do that and the, the show, you know, supports her in, in sort of making her own decisions about what her family is, is really radical. I mean, this is the most queer I've ever seen something mainstream, intended for mainstream consumption be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never seen uh, in a mainstream piece of cinema or television a uh, character talk about the transformative transcendent spiritual power of giving somebody a blowjob like as a gay man like that's like one of those like things that is an aspect of your experience that you don't see in mainstream narrative and the fact that Leto says I took him in my mouth like taking a holy communion was mind-blowing to me and I think there's a lot of stuff like that that's going to make people uh like you were saying feel uncomfortable and I don't know why so let me (laughs) let me find a way to complain about this yeah, I mean that that stuff about family was was extremely powerful, and that's something you're never seeing in in sort of mainstream series television. You know, the idea, you know, that really strong rejection of traditional quote unquote family. You know, which is almost always constantly reiterated and reinforced on on mainstream TV. And as someone who uh, you know has uh, uh, found a lot of you know, sort of found family myself and had to make family, you know, that is, that is, you know, I still have, you know, I'm really close to, to family, but, you know, I also have this huge, you know, found family of my own. Um, It's amazing to watch that sort of play out because that is something that, you know, I've never, I've never really seen portrayed positively. Right. Yeah, the Wolfgang, even the Wolfgang uh, storyline, where he basically says, like, no, my father was a fucking asshole. Like, I, my father, like, I don't accept the bonds of family over mm-hmm. the bonds of love when my father was an abusive asshole. Like, and, 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 you know, you, my uncle who wants to kill me, I'm going to kill you because you're, you know, I'm not going to let this idea of family that's oppressive and, and problematic, like, guide my decision making. I'm going to choose the life I want. And I found that extremely powerful. I mean, I have, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not very close to my biological father. And, uh, you know, that whole, that whole rejection of it, it's like, you know, there's still a lot of pressure on me to sort of come to terms with and, and reach out to my biological father. Uh, you know, even when I explain the entire situation and what it was like growing up, people are like, well, you know, it, it's still something where you should, for closure, 
you know, come to terms with, you know, loving, you know, who your blood is. And um, it, it just has always blown my mind how strong that narrative is and how much it gets reinforced by everyone that even if you've gone through a completely shit experience, people still expect you to love, you know, find that uh, forgiveness and love and redemption in someone who just happened to, you know, be related to you sheerly through DNA. And, you know, there are other ways in which I, I love my my background, you know, the fact that I'm a child of the Caribbean, I'm, you know, I'm starting to meet some of my extended family. But as far as my biological father, there's like nothing there. And so watching something like that, to see that, you know, on screen and, and you know, usually when you see narratives like this, it's there's that rejection. And then the point of the, the, the circle is for them to come around by the end and find that resolution and, and to let go of that that rejection, right? They always make people come back around. And in this, it's like, no, he doesn't. And that's so fantastic. I did also want to mention there was a story on io9 with the headline, Sense8 is the Philip K. Dick adaptation we always wanted. Um, I thought that this was the Theodore Sturgeon adaptation we always <laughs> wanted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, this really seemed like a Theodore Sturgeon thing to me for a couple of reasons. I mean, if people don't know, I mean, Theodore Sturgeon was always writing about love and empathy were his great themes. And he just wrote story after story about a group of individuals who kind of merge and form some sort of collective that's greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, He has a really well-known novel called More Than Human that deals with that. Mm -hmm. And he was also very, um, uh, he was one of the first writers to have gay characters in science fiction in his stories uh, and portray them sympathetically. Um, there's a story he wrote called The World Well Lost. And I actually just looked this up. I didn't know this, but on Wikipedia, it says that when the story, when he, when Sturgeon first submitted this story, um, that the editor rejected it. And then he called up all the other science fiction editors and urged them to reject it too. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, Amazing. that just was gives... it Campbell? I, I, it didn't say, but I assume it was <laughs> yeah. Campbell. Fucking Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, to just give you an idea of what things used to be like in science fiction and just how far things have come that you have a show like this uh, now. Mm-hmm. It, it occurs to me that, you know, you're correct that, that Sturgeon's a better choice than Philip K. Dick, but uh, as far as, like, you know, generating clicks goes, probably <laughs> saying Philip K. Dick it makes more sense because people know who he is and most people don't know who Sturgeon is, so... Uh, you know, I, I bet uh, whoever wrote the post at Iron Nine probably in their heart knew Sturgeon was the better choice, but... <laughs> I actually felt like this was the best Octavia Butler adaptation we're likely to see for a while because it was pinging mind of my mind so hard for me, which is my favorite science fiction mm. novel. Um, you know, the, this idea of people who are linked um, psychically, psionically, and who can only really like survive by working together and who like have like a bond that is way deeper and more meaningful, but, but or, or at least very, very different from what, you know, sort of the other ways in which they they have relationships in the world um so that's that's something i've seen very rarely except for octavia butler so it's very so, exciting but, that visual sf is uh, uh you know on tv and movies has finally caught up to the science fiction of like what the late 80s <laughs> <laughs> yeah truly must be morning in america <laughs> well it's interesting sam what you were saying about sort of bringing people together because I heard J. Michael Straczynski in an interview. He said that actually the, the literal the inception of this show was that he and the Wachowskis, they were just thinking about how the world is divided, that we're divided, you know, by race and gender and everything. And, you know, we have by nation and that they wanted to tell a story about people divided by all these things all coming together and have a show that brought people together. And I just want to 
get you guys' opinion on whether they succeeded in that. Is this a show that you think makes people look at other people differently and is going to foster a sort of global unified um, <laughs> feeling toward our fellow human beings? I mean, I think you're setting a pretty high bar there <laughs> for any television show. I mean, I think uh, it does. It has so many like great portrayals of people that I, I think. Um, I mean, that's what we always hope for in fiction, right? Is that we hope to understand people better through, you know, experiencing these narratives through these different points of view. And so, um, I mean, I I can hope that something like this will help, maybe help some people who maybe have uh, misguided uh, points of view about uh, either you know queer people or or you know about other races and that kind of thing. But um, ultimately, I think that's that's a lot to ask of any piece of entertainment. But Hopefully it can maybe, you know, chip away at least a little bit at some of those kinds of biases that people have, even if they don't know that they have them. Because, I mean, I think I think with characters as great as, as the ones they have on this show, I think it's um, something like this does have a shot at, at maybe changing some people's minds, even a little bit, just because it's like, because they're so well drawn and they're so, they feel so real that... Um, I mean, you'd have to, you almost have to be a monster to not, <laughs> to not like sort of empathize with these characters and, and what they're going through and not be able to, and, and to be able to not relate to what they're going through, like that emotional journey. So, you know, I mean, if any show has the chance, maybe it's this one. I sort of, you know, what I'm hoping it'll do is that it's successfully enough to convince other filmmakers, other series TV to do more stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Character-driven science fiction, uh, global perspective science fiction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, non-standard uh, other, other types of people science fiction. And, you know, I'm looking at this and just sort of looking at it and, and hoping that it's a marker mm-hmm. for more like this, you know, whether, you know, whatever it is, just I want this to succeed so that we can see more great stuff like this. And to I think that what this is is sort of like, you know, a, a chance to maybe take the bar up a notch. And I hope that, you know, it does do that and, and certainly, uh, you know, gets other shows to kind of take up their game a notch. I do want to say, like, since we're we're potentially looking forward to four more seasons of this show, I did want to talk a little bit about that because, you know, as I was saying, I'm, I'm afraid this is just going to turn into superheroes fighting a government mm-hmm. conspiracy. and. I thought I had way more problems with, I think, the last episode. I think I had more problems with the last episode than every other episode put together. Mm-hmm. Um, because you had this, to me, pretty implausible sequence where Will single-handedly infiltrates this, some sort of facility um, to rescue Riley. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like, like, whispers, why don't they just, like, lock the door of the room that she's in? <laughs> and, you know, I, I guess... Did anyone? Ha- did you guys feel the same way that the the last episode, like it was it was cool and everything, but it was it just felt totally totally impossible. To me, what was really interesting was that I felt like the emotional climax of this show was the tenth episode. That the the sort of like show that's about characters and community and love and and you know building together and chosen family has its climax in the incredible birthing slash symphony mm-hmm. sequence um, and then episodes eleven and twelve are where we deal with all the action and mm-hmm. the sort of plot like the the overarching plot about the conspiracy and the and the infiltration of the evil compound so I, I agree I felt like it was an interesting choice to sort of have a um, sort of uh, emotional climax followed by a whole lot of action um, that didn't didn't 
work for me so well, although I still love the the actual ending, like the last the last scene mm-hmm. um, I thought was was really solid. Um, but those episodes sort of like episode 10 had me like a weeping, sobbing wreck. And mm. I was like, uh, I had to watch the last episode on the train uh, and I was ah. afraid to do it because I thought I was going to like make a scene and <laughs> make a horrible spectacle of myself, which I didn't because that the, the finale wasn't that mm-hmm. it wasn't going for that, uh, that uh, hitting that that emotional uh, punch. Well, it's funny, Sam, because the climax of the, the first Matrix movie is my least favorite of, moment of the movie where um, <laughs> Trinity says, Neo, you can't be dead because I love you. And she kisses him and brings him ah. back to life. <laughs> and I always assumed that the Wachowskis would have looked at that scene in retrospect and be like, oh, man, what were we thinking? Yeah. Because that's what everyone else's reaction to it has been <laughs> that I've talked to. But then they did the same thing in episode 12. It's like, have you learned nothing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I was going to say it's um, it, it must be kind of a, a difficult challenge for any sort of... Um, you know, filmmaker or, or, you know, whatever you call, you know, television producers, whatever, like people who are making these, these visual entertainments, um, to, to have this kind of emotional through line on a show. Um, but then, you know, and so you want to have, like, I'm sure they wanted to have that sort of climax come at, at, at the, in the final episode. But on the other hand, they also have to try to balance that with, um, sort of the less sophisticated viewer who's going to be more interested in the, you know, smashy blowy up, things uh you know action sequences and so i think it's probably the wiser choice because it's like uh the people who are in for it in in it for the emotional um content are are more likely to stick around for the more action oriented episodes because we're already invested in the characters whereas the people who are more interested in the um big action spectacles are um going to be harder to hold on to um without you know constant action do you think that's true though john i mean like do you think our reaction to the show is that much different from the average person? Do you think the average people were all like, oh, yeah, I loved the episode 12. You got her out of that <laughs> compound. Because I feel like even even like just like the average person has probably seen that so many times. I, I just mm-hmm. don't I don't know. I, 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 I wonder if our reaction is that much different from the average mm-hmm. person and if they really need to be doing that to keep the interest of the people who are going to connect with the show. It was fascinating because, I mean, from a plot, I'm, I'm a plot junkie and I love action mm-hmm. adventure and I, I've flat out i mean i think it would have been if if you're going to be really mercenary about it you would have ended the season with her still in the hospital and and that mm-hmm. huge emotional experience cuz who wouldn't have turned in next season to figure mm-hmm. out how the hell they get her out of the hospital mm-hmm. so you know they ended with a natural ending which is getting her mm-hmm. out of the hospital and sure whispers is chasing them but i mean the the highest moment of tension is her being trapped in the hospital with whispers. Mm-hmm. And that's a great place to end a season for people to be forcibly tuning into the next one to go like, Oh my gosh, what happens yeah. next? Um, so I, I do think there was kind of this like, uh, you know, almost uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, <laughs> three different endings kind of thing going on, you know, uh, with the end of that first season where it was like, you know, actually they didn't need to tie it up in such a mm. neat boat. They may have lost some watchers because of that. Well, you know, I suspect that that might be partially Michael, uh, J. Michael Straczynski's, uh, experience with television and, you know, uh, potentially having your show pulled out from under you without you being able to, to wrap yeah. it up. And so, um, yeah, I, I wonder if that was a factor actually, because yeah, what, I mean, I, I didn't think of it until you were just, you guys were just saying it, but yeah, you're totally right that that, that would have been a, a, a sort of a more obvious way uh, place to end the season. Uh, but given that 
they probably didn't know what sort of future the show had at that point when they were, you know, they, they didn't know if it was going to get picked up again. They wanted to give it a little bit more closure, um, you know, while still leaving it open to tell the other stories they wanted to tell, but uh, to just in case that all they got was this one season, you know? Yeah, they wrapped it up. That that that, that makes sense. They might in, in future seasons decide to end on, on you know, more natural mm-hmm. cliffhanger notes. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's easier for us to armchair quarterback the sure. entire thing because we don't have to do all the work. <laughs> yeah. We didn't have to go to nine different cities. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I imagine that, I mean, this was, like, so, so, such a huge risk for everyone involved, I mean, and, you know, and how expensive it must have been to produce all these episodes that they probably had, <laughs> They, th- it's like they probably didn't really have very much security going into it that it was like, oh, well, no, sure, we're going to get renewed. It's like, well, who knows? I mean, it's got to do so well in order to actually justify making more of it because it had to have been so expensive. Um, and, and by the way, I have to say, like, I got to give credit to the Wachowskis and uh, J. Michael Straczynski for like being so hands on throughout like the whole season. It wasn't just like a writer's room where like they came up with the general plot points and like they farmed out a bunch of the episodes like they had their hands all over this thing. Like um, I didn't notice if they wrote every single episode, but they certainly wrote a bunch of the episodes. Yeah, no, they themselves. wrote, every, they wrote every, I think I believe they wrote every episode. Okay, like, okay. like what they said was that each of them like like the Wachowskis wrote half and then J. Michael Straczynski wrote half and then they like rewrote each other's. Scripts. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's the best way to do it, I think. But um, and then also not only that, but uh, the Wachowskis also directed a bunch of the episodes. Um, yeah. So you know they were really, really hands on on this, and and I have to, I have to give them res- I, I got to have a lot of respect for that. I think that's tremendous, and I think you see some of the most amazing. You know, uh, you see some really amazing things happen. I think when when you've got that level of deep involvement. Mm-hmm. Although on the directing, John, it's interesting because since they were in nine different cities. Mm-hmm. Um, the directors were assigned by city rather than by oh. episode. Mm-hmm. And so like whoever gets credit for any in- individual episode is just kind of arbitrary. It's whoever like directed the most <laughs> scenes from that episode. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. Wow. Um, but this is, I, I don't know if I've watched any other Netflix original series, but do you guys have any sense of to what degree was just the like off the wall craziness of this show? Related to it being a, a, a like an online thing, and did it not was it not subject to some of the same pressures that um, network shows or cable shows are? Nothing that queer could ever have been produced <laughs> by a network show, certainly. And even yeah. I don't even HBO can't can't do that kind of stuff. I, I think that was that it's hard to imagine that outside of a venue like Netflix or a- Amazon or any of the other con- online content creators. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really exciting to think about then, right? That in the future, we might be getting a lot more stuff like this as these more online um, distribution mm-hmm. platforms become more prominent. And I think, too, the um, sort of complexity of the plot line um, is is a lot easier to deal with. I mean, I, I think uh, just nowadays with, uh, with, with the TiVos and everything, like people, like uh, producers are much more open to these complicated plot lines, you know, whereas like, you know, if you miss an episode, you might be completely lost. Whereas obviously on Netflix, they're not concerned about that whatsoever. Um, so, you know, they're, they're able to make everything as complex as they want without having to worry about um, people being lost because it's like, well, you know, all the episodes are right there. Um, although, you know, actually given that, the, even though like, you know, we can just watch them all whenever we want, I, I do kind of wish they still had the previously on, sort of thing Me at the too. start of each episode just to remind us like of the key beats that maybe are going to be referenced in this whatever episode we're about to watch um i always kind of miss those when i'm streaming a show because um those are actually very useful so 
Um, and, and, and this show is actually complicated enough that um, I feel like there are a lot of things that you might forget um, yeah. as you're watching it. And like I, so like when I rewatched it the, for the second time, I, um, I did pick up on a lot of things that I sort of missed the first time around. Um, and I thought it was interesting in retrospect. Um, and, and actually just like, and, and it's just a lot of the stuff um, uh, rewatching it actually shows you how, uh, uh, how detailed they are uh, with a lot of different elements. And like, you know, uh, like Dave was saying, you know, um, having Mr. Whispers uh, appear in that first episode and then, you know, we don't see him again until later, um, you know, so, so much later in the show. It's like, it was cool to see those scenes um, after I know everything that happens in the rest of the season. So. Actually, speaking of Mr. Whispers, what do you think is going to happen with Will now that he has Mr. Whispers yeah. permanently in his head? Is I mean, are they going to be able to do something to get Mr. Whispers out of his head? Like, presumably they can't just keep him drugged or, like, in the dark uh, right. for the whole rest of the show. Well, what was interesting for me rewatching the first episode um, after seeing the last episode was that I hadn't realized that Angelica was like drugging herself and trying to keep in a state mm-hmm. of constant unconsciousness. And the reason she killed herself was because she had run out of drugs. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's certainly the, the sort of way that she was going about it. Um, you know, I don't know the rules enough to know whether or not like you could just like, you know, could you just keep him in a room somewhere and, you know, not tell him where he well, is? Well, there's and... that one area of Iceland where they're not able to communicate with each other. So, I mean, I, I, I imagine at some point they might just stick him in isolation. <laughs> Wait, sorry, what, what was the, there's a region of Iceland where they, they have no telepathic powers? Yeah, remember that? Yeah, when Riley and Will are on the mountaintop, none of the other ones can reach them. But I wasn't sure if that was because of the emotional intensity of where they were, that they had that like they had shut themselves down or something, like that was a conscious decision, or if it was the physical location. But there was like definitely some hint that that's not yeah, that mm. that, that there is a way to get possibly him out, out of the loop there if they need to. Well, you got to kill. You got to kill whispers, basically. That's well, yeah, that's do. eventually what's going to have to happen, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, okay, cool. So, um, does anyone else have anything else about Sense Eight that they wanted to cover that we didn't haven't talked about? Um, I'd like to throw a shout out to whoever produced the music for the show. Like the music is so well done. Like the, the original score stuff is like really well suited to all the, like uh, there's this recurring theme that plays throughout the show where, when like, it's like this really intense thing that happens when they're having an action sequence. Like, I love that. Um, but then all, uh, a lot of the other song choices were really great too. So, um, like I thought it was great when they did the, um, uh, four non blonde song or whatever. Is that, is that, is that the right yeah, name of the yeah. band? Um, uh, so when they did that and they and they were all sort of singing it, like I thought that was really well done and that was a good choice of song. Um, oh right, and it's actually called "What's Going On," right? And it was like that yeah. was the episode where you're just like, "What the fuck is going on?" And and the episode's even called that. So, um, but I mean, yeah, like a lot of the different um, songs in the show, I thought was just really well suited. Um, I don't know if anybody knows um, the the piece, the symphonic piece that they play during that um, birthing sequence. But like, what did that have any? Like, I don't know what the name of that is, or like, does that it's, have some sort of relevance to to what was happening on the show as well? I kind of feel like it probably does. It's Beethoven's fifth piano concerto, the Emperor mm, okay. Concerto. It's his last, considered his greatest. Okay. Um, I don't know enough about it to say whether like it has some resonance with the action. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, but, I, mean, I mean, otherwise, though, I, I mean, just I, I really was very pleased with the music in general. Yeah, the original music was most was co-written by Tom Tickver, who also wrote the music for Run, Lola, Run, which he directed mm-hmm. and um, Cloud Atlas, um, mm-hmm. which I also thought had phenomenal music. So mm-hmm. that, he's pretty solid. 
Yeah, and I, did, I like that four non-blonde sequence. That's another thing that you don't see in a lot of, like, a, just a typical TV show. Although then I've had a really bad cold this whole past week, and I had that <laughs> st- song stuck in my head for, like, like, 20, like, 24 hours a day, so. Huh. Now you know how Nomi feels. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, any, any other, any final comments? You know, just if if someone's listened to the whole thing and is still listening to us, like you know, hey, go check it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I expected at least one of us would have hated it. I'm I'm kind of uh, you know not disappointed, but it's uh, we we were all pretty taken with it, so that says something about it. You know, if someone's listened to this and they haven't actually watched it yet, you know, I mean, there's lots of we mentioned lots of spoilers, but I mean, I think this is the sort of show that it's very much still worthwhile watching, even if you have heard these spoilers and, and you've heard other spoilers. I, I think I don't know that it would really matter that much if if I had spoilers for this show. Um, I mean, I'm glad that I did go into it fresh without having anything ruined for me. But um, but I mean, I think since the core of it, the the real the real achievement of the show is that emotional um, portrayal of these characters. I think that that you can't spoil that. So, you know, definitely still check it out. If if anything that we've said intrigues you. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John, Joseph Adams, Tobias Bacall and Sam J. Miller. So guys, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks Thanks for for having us. It was awesome. (laughs) And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Tobias Bacall, and Sam J. Miller for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Killabill13 in the U.S. and Jolly Bobs in the U.K. Special thanks as well to Chris McKee, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and also to Michael Flynn, who just increased his pledge amount to $1.50 per episode. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to thank Thomas Cam, who just became PayPal patron number 116. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.